Father, open our hearts and minds to the wonder of your salvation tonight and fill our hearts with joy as we look forward to Easter Sunday and the great victory over sin and death that Jesus achieved for us. For us in his strong name that we pray. Amen. Now we're in for a treat because Sam's going to interrogate Katie and we're going to find out a little bit more about her and what God has done in her life. Hello, can you... Oh, you can't hear me? <laughs> well, contrary to um, how it looks, we haven't rehearsed this at all. Um, and I have some questions here that I'm going to ask Katie. So just to keep it moving, Katie, um, who are you, why are you here, and what are you doing? Um, well, I'm Katie Burke, and so that's who, wh what, what am I? Yeah, <laughs> why are you here? Why am I here? Um, so I came here to uh, study uh, full-time ministry and to kind of see if God was calling me uh, to serve him uh, by working um, in a church. So, yes, so I'm actually, obviously, from my voice, I'm not from around here. <laughs> um, so I'm from the States, from Pennsylvania. Okay. So, I mean, most of you who come to church will have seen Katie at the front and doing lots of different things. But, Katie, we want you to tell us more about yourself and uh, maybe going back to your upbringing um, and, yeah, what were the major influences in your life in those early years? Yeah, so um, I grew up in Pittsburgh, go Steelers, <laughs> and um, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, so my parents, I have a younger brother, Malcolm, and grew up around both of my grand, both sets of my grandparents lived very nearby, um, and were very involved in my life. Um, we even at one point, like my mother's parents and our whole family, we all went to the same church. So it was. Um, I saw a lot of them, um, and yeah, they kind of were an influence on me that um, even, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the doxology, we used to sing the doxology as grace. Um, <laughs> so, and my mom studied Christian education, so basically she was a professional teacher of children about Christianity and Jesus, so you can imagine what my, my house was like growing up. Um, so, yeah, our house was filled with singing and with um, memorizing Bible verses and um, really silly Christian media for children. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I was kind of surrounded by it. Um, uh, but um, my parents uh, divorced when I was six. Um, so, but we still all went to church together. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so it was a different kind of upbringing, I guess. Okay, so a Christian upbringing, mm -hmm. um, but obviously the divorce and, and the difficulties of, of that must have been big for you as a, as a smaller child. Um, so, I mean, the title tonight is Transformation Necessitated. It's a big word, isn't it? So, in that sort of sense of... The, ne the necessity of, of Christian faith, and I suppose we want to talk about 
Jesus and transformation. Wh when did that when did that realization that you needed Jesus or you needed there was something in your life that needed to change? When did, when did that come about? Um, yeah, I think that was it was kind of a two part thing. Um, so I have a very distinct memory um, when I was at five, um, being in a church and um, at like a youth club um, in the evening. And I can see the, the worship leader's face. Um, and Lower was just, it was truth to me that um, I was a sinner in my very childlike understanding of what that meant, um, that, um, that I needed Jesus, and that was the only way. Um, I don't think I really understood all of what that meant, um, but it was just very simple truth to me, and so I remember being like, Yes, I need Jesus. Um, but I think I kept that. It was like a one-and-done deal. And uh, I think for almost 11 years, really, that was kind of, Je that's who Jesus was to me, that he was, well, he did that thing. And um, he died on the cross for me, and now I'm saved. Um, and I didn't really go farther in my relationship with the Lord. Um, it seemed very simple. Um, but in the midst of that, um, so like I said, my parents were divorced. Um, and I think even though I knew that it was because of Jesus and what he had done, um, what I saw in my life was my Christian family pretending like we were perfect. We we sat in church together as if it was all fine. Um, I don't think anyone in the church maybe even knew that my parents were divorced. Um, certainly no one at school did. And so I quickly realized, oh, we need to be perfect on the outside. Um, we need to behave a certain way. Um, we need to perform academically a certain way. And so everything became about being on the outside what I was supposed to be, and um, I'm a performer, so I got really good at it, um, and I realized, too, that, um, like, I lived with my mom, and so the best way to get my dad's attention was to do really well at school, and to do really well in music, and in dance, and performing, and so I really poured myself into that, into getting his attention by doing really well, that he would love me if I only, you know, could perform a certain way. Um, and I tricked myself into believing that that was working um, until I was about 13. And my dad just came out and said, so uh, it was a Wednesday. And he picked me up from dance class, and which is a surprise. It's not normally what happens. My mom usually would have collected me, and uh, he said, so um, we're going to be doing something different on Saturday, which was confusing because I already had plans for Saturday. He said, um, so I'm getting remarried. Um, and I only knew he was dating because three days before, he had introduced me to her. <laughs> um, and uh, I was like, what do you mean you're getting married? Um, and he's like, not only is that, but uh, we want you to read 
1 Corinthians 13 at the wedding, um, which is love is patient, love is kind, um, it is not selfish. Um, and because I wanted to be the good daughter, I didn't say anything, and um, I went to the wedding, and I read 1 Corinthians 13, but I was so hurt, but so angry. Um, and I was angry for a really long time. Um, and because now we were going to church with my grandparents and my mom and my dad and my stepmom and all of her children as well, um, my mom and I left that church because it was too much going on. Um, and in God's mercy, he put me in a youth group where they suggested that I go away for camp in one summer. And uh, we were at this camp. I was 15. And um, I, I knew that on the outside, I looked really happy and perfect and the perfect daughter, right? But inside, I was, um, I was fuming, really. My relationship with my dad had completely fallen apart. Um, and in the church, we always call God the Father, right? So um, I was just, I was angry at God. I didn't want to say that, but I mean, he had let my parents get divorced. And then he'd let my dad hurt us all by getting remarried. And um, he stopped coming to my events because he went to my stepbrother's events instead. And I was just, um, yeah, I was devastated at the loss of that relationship. And so I'm at this camp, and they break you up into these, like, groups, and we were going to do skit night, where they give you a, a bag of props, <laughs> and you have to make up a skit. And we made up this skit where, like, oh, we're going to have this, uh, as all teenagers do, they're like, we'll do a skit on, on, on body image and what God really says about body image. <laughs> so um, I was the youngest at 15, and they're like, so you, will, you will sit, and we'll pretend that you're, like, looking into, like, a big mirror in your room, and then all these different people who represent people in your life are going to come in and, and say different things about um, who you are, but it's, it's really just all lies, and you'll slowly break down, and then, and then we'll have, you know, God walk in, and then he'll tell you who you really are, and this will be our skit, a good Christian camp skit. Um, and so... I, I love acting, <laughs> and so I was like, great, this is awesome, um, and so we practiced and everything, and then it came to the night, and it was, it was you know, we did the skits outside um, in kind of like a pavilion, um, and I realized as we started acting that I wasn't actually acting, um, as different people came up, one person, you know, it was like, one person represented, like, friends, and then um, the last person to go was someone who was supposed to represent my dad. Um, and I wasn't fake crying anymore as he um, said all these lies about how disappointed he was in me. Um, and there, <laughs> there I was, you know, acting. Everyone thought I was just acting. Um, but to me, it was really real. I was, um, yeah, and then this, 
Um, this man in our group, who was kind of our leader, was actually a retired minister <laughs> um, whose son ran the camp. And he was representing God. And so he walked in in like a, a white sheet. <laughs> and um, he started speaking at me, you know. Um, and he was just reading scripture, really. Uh, verses from the Bible about who God says that we are. Um, who he sees when he looks at us. Um, but there he was with his, like, crazy white curly hair, and um, he was the most unnerving eye contact, I think, of my life, <laughs> um, where I was both terrified and I couldn't look away. And um, just the, the warmth and the love as he spoke at me, I think he also knew that, for me, it wasn't acting anymore that I really needed to hear that God loved me, not because <laughs> I was a really great performer or, um, you know, in fact, he knew that it was all a lie, that in, in, inside I was so angry and hurt and that I, in some sense, I hated my dad, but also I hated God. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so I think from that moment, it's just really healing for me. Um, and so it really, it completely changed um, when I left that camp, you know, because then my faith wasn't just my mom taking me to church on Sunday or um, going to Sunday school and memorizing scripture. Um, it was some a relationship to pursue. Um, and, you know, wasn't perfect. I didn't magically like become like the most amazing Bible scholar ever or something. Um, but yes, I think over the past 11 years, yeah, it's just been this growing of a relationship um, and learning that God loves me um, because he loves me. Well, I, I'm going to stop there, Kitty, because I think that that is what we need to hear. Um, and I really appreciate you sharing that um, and, and sharing that depth and um, sort of intimate moment there. And, and I suppose that's what we're trying to get across, is that Jesus does want to take us as we are and transform us. Um, and there is, an, you know, all of us have that need for that. And thank you for sharing that, Kitty. Thank you. Maybe we'll give her a bula bus. Don't be sitting down, Katie. <laughs> Did you overhear? Yes. We're going to sing again, folks. <laughs> it's an old favorite, Amazing Grace. So please stand. Now I'm going to ask Jamili to come and do our scripture reading, which is taken from Luke 22. Uh, 
Luke 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched over for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. That's all right. Do I need to switch this on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's great. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. And, um, my wife Sharon is here with me as well, and um, it's a great opportunity to have fellowship over these couple of days. Do I switch that off? Yeah. Around this idea of transformation, especially in the context of the Easter season, the Easter story, because you know, I suppose Easter is sort of a multi-layered. Uh, experience and uh, and even the story in, in in the gospels, like you know the betrayal, the denial, the arrest, the trial. You know, there's so much going on, and to try and weave the theme of transformation into that is sort of something I felt on my heart as as Sam had asked me to think about coming to take these few meetings, and uh, tonight it's about. The necessity of of, um, of transformation. Why is it necessary at all? I mean, when you're having a good day, the sun is shining at last, and uh, a few days holiday, and we're going to have an even better summer than last year. Life is great. But then, as Caddy has shared, um, you know, when we take a, a, a wider-angled view of life, and we look about, you know, where life is going and what our destiny is especially, it's then when the, the idea of transformation is something that really begins to, to kick in. So our reading tonight is, is about this um, idea because tonight the, the sub-theme, if you like, is betrayal. Betrayal. And um, whenever it's the Wednesday of, of Easter week, I can't help but always think of when we were kids growing up uh, down the canal there in Ring's End. This was always Spy Wednesday. I suppose it's, a, it's I don't know, is it just a Catholic tradition or whatever? Spy Wednesday. And uh, we, could all, we could all especially connect with Easter Sunday, Easter eggs and all this type of stuff and Good Friday, it was always such, you know, everything was closed type of thing. 
but by Wednesday, we couldn't work it out. And I remember a kid at the time, you probably wouldn't remember, but the man from Uncle, a, a kid's detective series, was always was, was, was huge. And we some tried to work it in about this, this detective series on kids' television and Spy Wednesday and wondered how this all worked out. But I can settle this tonight once and for all that it's about, it's about Judas going and, and spying for the opportunity to betray Jesus. So here's Jesus on the threshold of being betrayed. And how does that tie in with the necessity for transformation? Well, it's interesting that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, the Apostle Paul is speaking about this night, not about essentially this, but he says, on the night that he was betrayed, and then he speaks about the upper room, he took bread and so forth and so on. But have you ever, have you ever thought about that? That Paul is saying, you know, all these years later, on the night that he was betrayed, it's as if that night was defined not by Jesus being arrested as such, not by him being denied three times. I mean, Paul could have said, oh, you know, on the night he was arrested, on the night he was betrayed three times. I mean, could we ever forget that night? On the night that he suffered in the garden, but he doesn't identify the night by any of those things, he says, on the night that he was betrayed. And I've often wondered about that. What was it about that act of betrayal that identified that very eventful night? And Jesus being betrayed. And, you know, I thought of a, of a parallel, if you like, that... Um, you know, well, first of all, I'd say that the, the dictionary definition of the word betrayal is useful just to look at momentarily because according to the dictionary definition, uh, betrayal is to hurt somebody who trusts you, especially by not being loyal or faithful to them. And that's sort of a general definition, but you get that idea. To hurt someone who trusts you, especially by not being loyal or faithful to them. So you sort of park that there, and then just go back in your mind. I'm going to read some verses from Genesis chapter 3. Our first parents in the Garden of Eden. And it says, it's sort of interesting that in our reading this evening, in verse 3, it says, Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went then and spoke with the officers in the temple guard about how he may betray Jesus. And then in the garden it speaks about Satan coming to our first parents before 
Another betrayal I would put to you, this is the point I'm making, another betrayal, a parallel betrayal, that the God um, who loved them and trusted them, then in, the, in, in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The text tells us that, that, that God came down every evening in the cool of the day. And God had this incredible um, provision for Adam and Eve, fellowship with him face to face and in a perfect world. And so God comes down in the cool of the day and they hear and they hid. It says they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And I, I, I'm just putting this thought before you to meditate that when Paul says, on the night on which he was betrayed, leave a bit of space in your heart to sort of drill down into that and carry it back then to the garden where our first parents uh, betrayed God's the trust that God had put in them. And from that betrayal in the garden, what flowed out from that? If you read on, I'm not going to read on down through the text, but you can see that cursing and enmity and pain and violence and ultimately death flowed out from that betrayal. It flowed out from that betrayal. You might remember, was it two years ago? I can't remember, time flies. But... Um, Please tell me it's right. It's a Stephen Fry, isn't it? It was on uh, the program with Gay Byrne on Irish television. Um, trying to think of the name of the program. Anyway, it was about death. No. Would you believe meaning of life? Something like that. But the punchline question that Gay stepped forward like the circus ringmaster every week uh, Gay Byrne would say to whoever he was interviewing, so you arrive at the gates of heaven. What are you going to say to God? And who would ever forget Stephen Fry saying, you know, mocking God and, and jeering God and how dare you? You know, he talks about a sickness in Africa, a child. But you know, if I could speak to Stephen Fry, I'd say to him, you don't have to go to Africa to see how unfair life is. The pain, the suffering, the violence, the enmity, the cursing, and ultimately the death that flowed out from the betrayal in the garden, the betrayal of the trust that God had put 
in our first parents. And on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus embraced this act of betrayal. I think it's really significant. You know, before anything happens. Because um, this happens shortly after he goes and prays, you know, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, but yours, your will be done. This is when the betrayal takes place. And, you know, here's a point to think about as well. It's often been said that the saddest thing about betrayal, the saddest thing is that it never comes from your enemies. Do you get that? You don't get betrayed by your enemies. It has to be a loved one or a friend. You know, if Jesus was, was, was pointed out to by, let's say, a random Pharisee or a temple guard or whatever, they would have been an informant, not a betrayer. But it was by Judas, one of the twelve. And so, um, in Matthew's account of this event, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47, it says, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And then it says, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. And notice this. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Isn't that interesting? Do what you came for, friend. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was betrayed by a friend who kissed him. Profound, isn't it? Because Jesus was stepping forward from having prayed, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless... Not my will, but your will be done. And that stepped forward into the, into the space of one who was betrayed with a kiss. And I just feel myself, and I put it to you to, to reflect upon it, such a heavy shadow of Genesis chapter 3 hanging over this event. This parallel that Satan came as a serpent in the garden and it said in our reading tonight, Satan entered Judas and immediately he went talking about how he could betray Jesus. And so to pick up that point, necessity for transformation? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, because 
all that's flowed from, from, from what happened in Genesis chapter 3, cursing, enmity, pain, violence, sickness, ultimately death, it's still very much here. And God wants to transform that. And is transforming it and can do it for every single one of us here in this room tonight, absolutely not a problem. And, um, you know, you, you can look around in our city. Sharon and myself have been working in an inner city context in Ringsend for 20 years. And before that, we were working in uh, Sheriff Street and Sean McDermott Street. And we've seen a lot of brutality and savagery in the city. A lot of great stuff as well. But this incredible need for transformation in communities, in people's lives, in families, and so on. I don't know if many of you have read a book called Surprised by Hope. Uh, it was written by uh, a guy, Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright, former Anglican Bishop of Durham. But uh, one part, I'm going to quote a, a, just a little paragraph on that. And Tom Wright is talking about the, this very thing, this very brutality and violence and everything that's going on in, in, in this city, in the urban context. And he's referring to England, but it, it resonates very clearly in our own city. And he's talking about the mission of God in this context. And he's saying, don't be naive Remember the many places and situations where vested interests, corrupt policies and politicians, tyrants, bullies, and communities who have turned in on themselves racially and culturally, they find our gospel witness threatening and offensive. He's calling for sort of a different approach uh, and for us to be sensitive and careful about how we're taking the gospel into these situations. And this sense of communities turned in on themselves, I just see so much of that over the years. People just feeling that, you know, the despair and, you know, a big thing happened in Ring's End with an incinerator being built and people throwing themselves in front of diggers and then all the city councillors um, vote against it, but the Dublin city manager says, Look, it's just going to go ahead, and that's that, and, and the despair, and people giving up, and all this type of stuff. You can see something similar happening, I suppose, across the water. I won't mention the B word. <laughs> we're, we're all having a break from that. But you know what I mean? This sort of, this sort of sense in which, yeah, transformation. And yet, people, the very people who want who need that transformation, being, what's it, uh, Tom Wright says, uh, being, feeling threatened and, and being o offended by the gospel. You know, when Sharon and I felt that the Lord was calling us to, to take over this old mission hall in Ringsend where we operate from, it was the last place on the planet that I personally wanted to, to take on because we used to vandalize it when we were growing up. And it had a sort of a bad reputation on the night that the British embassy was burnt down after Bloody Sunday, back in the last century, people tried to burn down that mission hall, but it was so full of dry rot and dampness that it was physically impossible 
to burn down. They just gave up. <laughs> you know, so it was just hopeless, a hopeless sort of a thing. But it was a place that we felt the Lord was calling us to serve him. And that was bad enough, taking on, we called it Mission Impossible uh, at the time. But we, we really had it on our hearts, and thank God we still have, that God wants to do a work of transformation in our city. And because of Easter, this is all possible. If it wasn't for Easter, what would we do? And shortly after we took it on, uh, I'll never forget, I, I was summoned to a meeting in the local community center, and a sort of a coalition of people who represented different groups, important people, um, community leaders, at a, at very much at a coal-faced level rather than a, at a political level, a coal-faced level. They wanted to talk to me about, I can't use the language that they use, I don't really want to, but there was a lot of uh, very colorful language used. Who do you think you are taking on that mission hall? We're waiting for that to be given to us. We've been sitting waiting for decades for that. And then you, who do you think you are? And what on earth do you propose doing there? And I had a great opportunity to share what God had, a bit like what Katie did tonight. To, I just, I'm going to go for this, Lord. You cover me, please. <laughs> and I, I told him that I was just going to do whatever was on God's heart to do. Don't you bring religion into this community. And I was being pitched as, as if I was betraying the community. Do you get the point here? Betrayal? It's, you know, who, who do you think you are? And then, what? You're taking that on? And now you're talking about bringing God in? And, you know, you're not a Catholic? And all this type of stuff, even though they weren't sort of people who went to church. But sometimes religion is a tribal thing. And this type of stuff. And um, I was really getting it in the neck of these people. And then they said to me, we'll see that you don't get any funding. We'll see that you don't get any support and all this type of stuff. And so I'm sharing that in the sense of what Tom Wright was saying about people feeling corrupt policies and politicians. And, and, and there are some great politicians, obviously, and some great policymakers as well. But after decades of this and decades, feeling that they have to turn in on themselves and just sort of take control of things. And I thank God. I, I believe God gave me, gave me wisdom because I said to them, you know, if you really think what I'm doing is dangerous, is crazy, is bad, just, just wait and see. Give me a year. Give me two years. And if I'm doing something really wrong, I want to know. But if not, what if something really good is happening in this community? And they were adamant, no, we're going to give you a run for your money. You're going to realize that you have enemies in this community. And I said, well, you know, anything I can do to help you. I don't have access to funding, uh, but if I get materials, I'll be happy. And we did do that. We did give them that. But here's the point. Five years later, five years later, the fraud squad were coming down to investigate that particular group because of mis misappropriation of funding. And the very same week, the Lord Mayor of Dublin was giving me an award 
that the local community had nominated me for because of the work that we were doing in the community. And I didn't even know because the way this award is done, they do it every year, it's a bit like um, you just, the person who's getting the award isn't allowed to know and people have to do whatever it takes to, to get them into this room, a community room, the local GAA centre, Clannagale it's called, and the Lord Mayor hands out an award. And it can only be nominated for by the community. So here's, here's what transformation looks like, isn't it? And it's not as if, you know, oh, so Ring's End is a piece of heaven on earth. No, absolutely it's not, no. But the gospel comes in, the path of the righteous, as it says in Proverbs, grows brighter and brighter. Each step you take, it goes brighter and brighter. And um, that was such an incredible thing for me to process. It, wa it wasn't that I took any pleasure in those people having the fraud squad uh, come to them. Not a bit of it. But at the same time, for them to say, you know, we'll see to it that you are, you're not going to get any funding. We'll see to it that you're not going to get any help from this community, you know that they can do that, and then to see that the ground is cut under, underneath them. And some of the people that were in, in the room that night come into our cafe. We have a cafe at, at that mission hall, and one of them, Sharon, would say, loves putting her arms around I love you, putting her arms around me, giving me a big sloppy kiss on the side of the face. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I love this uh, concept of transformation. And... That, yeah, it's great for me as well. And it's, it's crucial, isn't it, that God has transformed me. That I've known what it is to have my sin forgiven. To know that I'm right with God. To know that although I don't deserve the very least of his mercies, that God has welcomed me into his family as his child and has forgiven me and washed me whiter than the snow. And the transformation that God has worked in my life isn't just about what things that I don't do and things that I do and what days of the week I do what. You know, the gospel is still transforming my life after 36 years. 36 years ago, as an atheist punk rocker, I surrendered my life to Jesus. I asked him to, to come into my life and save me and make me a new creation in, in Christ. And he didn't say, oh, hang on a minute, you're an atheist punk rocker. Will you not sort yourself out first because I really can't stoop down to that level? No, I just felt that the overwhelming love of God just, just sweeping over me. And the challenge for me every year since then is, is the gospel transforming my life today? and tomorrow, and ongoingly, is it transforming my life as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as a brother, as an employer, as whatever it is? Is the gospel transforming me? It is comfortable to be able to point back to a day 36 years ago. That's when I was transformed. That's sorted. Now I don't need to worry about that now. The challenge is the gospel is transforming me today. And I trust that God's grace is going to continue, as we've been singing earlier, to sustain me 
through layer after layer after layer of transformation. And to bring that into the community where he's called us to be a witness for him as well. And so think about the night that he was betrayed. That Jesus known better than anybody else in, in, in the whole history of humanity. That transformation was a dire necessity. Absolute non-negotiable. So much so that he had to come down from heaven to facilitate it. And that night, just after he had prayed three times, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Just after he prayed that, he said, my betrayer is coming. That's what he said to his disciples. And then the next thing, Judas comes. You can read about it in Matthew 28. We've read a little bit of it calls him rabbi and kisses him on the side of the face. And Jesus saying, do what you have come to do, friend. And Jesus occupying that place of one who was betrayed in his full, unknown full well, the significance of it. That he was looking at Everything that had stemmed from that first betrayal, he was going to absorb absolutely every single aspect of that. And that causes the hairs on the back of my neck to stand up, that the full scope of that, he was standing into that space and saying, I'm going to pick up the price tag for this. And that really just sets my heart on fire, that he occupied that place. And so the challenge is then, is the gospel transforming your life? Has the gospel transformed your life? Do you know about this transformation? Well, you're in a great place tonight if you want those questions answered because this is, this is the theme of tonight, tomorrow as well, and Friday also to look more into this idea of transformation, if the, if the whole gospel and the whole life of Jesus can be summed up in one word, I believe it's this word, transformation. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing what else God might want to share with us. Okay, Dave, thank you. Thanks very much for that, Joe. It's always great to be reminded that there is no mission impossible for the amazing grace of God. Let's just come now to that God now in prayer. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for the reminder of just how much we need you. And thank you that you are more willing to forgive than we are to ask for forgiveness. Father, thank you for all that you've done in Katie's life, in Joe's life, in my life, in many people's lives. And thank you for the way that you've blessed us by the transformation that you've brought about.
And Father, thank you for the way that you spoke to each one of us as Joe talked. And help us not to go from here forgetting what we've heard, but to retain it and mull it over in our minds, as Joe said, that your Spirit may do his work, leading us into all truth. And Father, we thank you now for the the good food that's been provided for us after the service. And we would ask you that you will bless it and those who prepared it and bless the rest of our time together tonight as we enjoy one another's company. For us in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to close now by singing Before the Throne of God Above. <laughs>